The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And uh, it's, as always, a, a busy, a busy week in technology. We, uh, they have actually used artificial intelligence to finish Beethoven's 10th unfinished symphony. We'll talk about how they did that, and then we're going to play some of it, and you can, you can judge for yourselves how well the AI did. And there's been another application of AI to music. They've taken folded protein sequences and turn them into music using AI. And it's interesting, you can detect differences in protein by li just listening to the music. It's uh, another fun application of artificial intelligence. The, um, and this brings us to uh, another interesting court case because now that we're getting AI making its own music, well, who owns the music? Who can trademark it? Is it the artificial intelligence program, or who might it be? I, I'm voting for the programmer, but I might be getting ahead yeah, of ourselves Yeah, well, right you now. know, the, the UK <laughs> Court of Appeals would agree with you, Andrew. Okay. You are okay. on the that, money that there. That does seem like a common sense answer. You are on the money there. Okay. And in the crypto world, China is going to ban crypto trading in China, and the U.S. Fed has said they're going to allow it. So there's a complete difference in attitude about cryptocurrencies between the U.S. and China. <clears throat> and, of course, China doesn't like crypto because they cannot control it. This week, we're going to feature Morris Chang. He, of course, is the founder of uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, the biggest semiconductor foundry in the world. I'm going to—I've actually—I actually profiled him back in 2008 and then again in 2018— but I thought I would do it today because TM, TSMC is at the center of the big chip shortage. And so I think it's interesting to talk about Taiwan, uh, TM, TSMC, how they got there, and how that impacts the worldwide supply chain of chips. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, in my continuing quest to attempt to support Doc and his efforts to put together this fantastic show, uh, which I much appreciate, I thought I would direct his attention to Morris Chang's last speech. Chang is the founder and two-time CEO of TSMC, now 90 years old and retired. All the best. Your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, uh, thanks for the link to that last talk. I, I listened to his last talk. I really like to listen to Morris Chang. He's a very humble guy, and he's made uh, tremendous impact. He ran the whole 
TI Semiconductor Program, and then he uh, then he founded the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Because of this email, Bob, I decided I would then re-feature Bob Morris again because it is so apropos in today's world, particularly with the uh, chip shortage. We got an email from Doug in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, I've been reading about the new Windows 11 and its requirement for a special security chip. I got a Windows laptop that I bought a few years ago. How can I check if I have this particular chip? Love the podcast, Doug and Kilmarnock. Well, Doug, you should be fine. Most PCs that have shipped in the last five years are capable of running the trusted platform module version 2, TPM 2.0. Now, TPM 2.0 is required to run Windows 11, and it's an important building block for security-related features. TPM2 is used in Windows 11 for a, a number of features, including Windows Hello for identity protection and BitLocker for data protection. It keeps malware from getting installed at the device driver level, at the hardware level, in a way that can't be detected by the operating system. <clears throat> now, in some cases, PCs are capable of running TPM2, but they're, but they're not set up to do so. So now, if you're considering to upgrade to Windows 11, you want to check whether you got a TPM 2.0 chip in your computer. Now, it's fairly easy to do. What you want to do, you open up uh, PCs, then open up Settings. Then you uh, go scroll down near, near the bottom of the list, go to Update and Security. And then uh, another window comes up. You click on Windows Security, and a final window comes up, Device Security. Now, under Device Security, you'll see an option for uh, security processor details under the security processor. And so you can click on the security processor, and it will tell you what version it is. I just did that this morning on my laptop, and thank goodness I've got TPM 2.0 on my machine. Now, if the version is less than 2.0, Windows won't run it. But if you've bought it in the last five years, you've probably got, uh, you've probably got the um, uh, TPM 2.0 installed. So that's fairly easy to check. Now, <clears throat> it could be that your uh, TPM is not, uh, if you don't see it there, you've got two options could occur. It could be that it's turned off and, and, and it's not activated during boot up. Or it could be that it's not there. So if you want to see whether it just wasn't activated during boot up, and most most laptops that you buy, it's activated. Actually, it's activated when you get it. But you, if if you build a, a PC, many times the um, the motherboard comes with that with the uh, with the TPM chip not not activated, and so you actually have to go in and activate it. So if you want to activate it, you've got to do that during the boot up sequence. So. What you want to do is go to settings again and then go to update and security and then go down to recovery and then click restart now. And that will bring up a screen where you can you can you can choose very option you can choose various options during boot up and you click on troubleshoot and then you click on advanced options and then you click on UEFI firmware settings. And in that UEFI firmware settings, you can actually turn on the TPM chip if you have it. And then you reboot the machine, and when you come back up, it will be running. By the way, UEFI stands for Unified Extensible Firmware Interface. 
it that replaces the new the old BIOS, basic input output system. So that's the that's the new BIOS, and it's far more powerful. That was actually a really good email uh, uh, from Doug in Kilmarney, because I think it's worth checking so you know whether whether you're going to have to buy a new new hardware to run Windows 11. We got an email from Tulk in Chantilly. Dear Doc and Andrew, I've decided to take your advice about replacing my hard drive in my computer with a solid-state hard drive, solid-state drive. Now, I'll be putting in a 240-gigabyte SSD as the primary drive. I'm going to leave I, – I can have two drives in my, in my computer. I'm going to leave the one-terabyte hard drive installed – uh, as a secondary drive for extra storage. I only got 240 gigabytes SSD because they're expensive. So the question I have, I think my programs are, are going to be, I have too many programs and to, to all fit on the 240 um, gigabyte SSD. Uh, can I take my programs and install them on, this, on the second hard drive? That's the question. So I can actually use the second hard drive for programs, and then I won't run out of space on the solid-state hard drive. Well, <clears throat> that should be no problem. Uh, in the past, it's true that many programs, when you installed them, they'd always go on the C drive. I mean, that, that was the, the – that and, and your SSD now, since that's the boot-up drive, is the C drive. But now the newer programs that, um, that, that are capable of running Windows 10 uh, let you select where the drive where you install them. So instead of just taking the default configuration, don't default it. Select the configuration where you can choose all the options, and you select the, the drive where you want it stored, and then you could select your, um, your, your secondary drive, which now would probably be listed as the D drive. And then you can install it there. That should be no problem at all. And then, now here's the thing. You're going to have to reinstall all your programs. You just can't copy the files because they'll all be pointing at the wrong drive. So you're going to have to take and reinstall Word, Excel, you know, all your programs. You know, Photoshop, whatever programs you have to reinstall, which means you're going to have to have the, the license key and the whole works. But you can just reinstall and put them on the D drive and you'll be good to go. And then just Windows is on your uh, is on your C drive and and if you want you could you, you could store some programs on your on your C drive if you the programs that you use a lot and and if you just want the want the fast access speed but I don't think you'll have any trouble to it so best of luck with your new solid state drive we got an email from Leslie in Oakton dear Tech Talk I recently bought my first Windows computer after working on Macs for many years I'm left-handed and I've found that using the left and right mouse button is very awkward for me. It, it just doesn't work. Someone told me that I could switch the functions on the mouse buttons in Windows so a left-handed people can click the primary button with their index finger. Can you tell me how to do that, Leslie in Oakton, Virginia? Well, Leslie, you can actually easily reverse the buttons. I'm, I'm also left-handed, but I just got so used to using... The right-hand configuration for the mouse that I think if I would switch them, it'd be confusing for me because I'm using other people's computers all the time, and they hate it if I take and reconfigure their mouse. So I've just gotten used to using the, the right-hand configuration. But if you want to switch them, <clears throat> you go to Control-S. That opens up the search box, and then type the word mouse settings into the search box, and then you can select mouse settings from a list of results. That gets you right to the to the exact point in, in the in the settings uh, 
in the settings program. And then once you get into mouse settings, click on additional mouse settings. And then there's a box that says switch primary and secondary buttons. There's just a box. Click on that box, switch primary and secondary buttons. After you click that, just click OK, and boom, you've reversed it. It should take you five minutes to reverse it, and then you'll be comfortable and good to go. We got an email from Eric in Baltimore. Dear Doc and Andrew, since I switched from Internet Explorer to Google Chrome, I can't read the RSS feeds. RSS stands for really simple syndication. That, for instance, when we our podcast, I write an RSS feed and I upload it to the web, and and that's how people get their podcast. All I see is a bunch of gibberish. Yeah, you're seeing XML code. XML code is is what the RSS feeds are written in. Which is technically not gibberish, by That the way. is not gibberish. No, that's extensible markup language, and there are tags in there that say which which uh, the how you how you tag each block of text so it can read it properly. So I mean, ever after the show each Saturday, I sit down with a with Notepad and I and I write the XML file for for the podcast before we before we upload it. Now, now the thing is, um, Eric, um, for some reason, Google decided not to have Chrome support for viewing RSS feeds by default, whereas you had default RSS viewer built into Internet Explorer. Now, the good news is that the Chrome team created an extension that will display your RSS feeds correctly. I've been using that extension for years. Once you install it, Chrome works perfectly. Now, here's the name of it. Very hard to remember. RSS, Subscription Extension by Google. <laughs> it's pretty easy to find in the list. So what you want to do, since you don't have it installed on your machine, you've got to go to the to the Chrome Web Store, and just search Chrome Web Store. Google it. And, um, and then, once you get into the Chrome Web Store, search for RSS, and that will give you a whole bunch of RSS extensions. Uh, <clears throat> for some reason, the Google extension is not on the top. You, it, it's about the fifth one on, on my machine. So you scroll down to it until you come to the RSS subscription extension by Google, and there will be a button that says that, that there that says Add to Chrome, Click on that Add to Chrome button, and you're good to go. And that extension works really well. I've been using it a long time. Uh, we got an email from John in Richmond. Dear Doc and Andrew, I've been thinking of getting a new iPad mini, but I've been reading something about jelly scrolling on these devices. What is this? I don't know, but it sounds delicious to Isn't me. Isn't that? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, have you heard about that jelly scrolling? No, actually, I'd never heard of it, or I don't believe I've experienced it. Yeah, well, uh, it may be everybody's experienced it, but it's just not that noticeable in, in most displays. It's an artifact of a display, jelly scrolling. Now, what happens, the display actually refreshes, say, from left to right. And so if you scroll down on the screen very quickly, it will refresh on the left before it refreshes on the right. So if you scroll down really fast, it looks like the scroll on the left is going down a little bit faster than what's on the right. Or uh, vice versa if you scroll down on the right side. So it looks like the display is a little bit, has like scrolls down like jelly. Now the thing is it depends on the refresh rate. So if it refreshes at say 120 kilohertz, 
you probably aren't going to see it. Most displays are 120. But it turns out the iPads are, are 60 kilohertz refresh rate. And so some people have been saying that they're noticing this jelly scroll. And it really depends on the orientation. If you have it oriented, the, 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 the mini pad horizontally, the way they do the scrolling, you don't notice it. But if you orient it in the portrait mode, it's more accentuated. So, but you have to scroll fast and look for it. The and funny there are just thing some is, people, I'm a, I'm always, it really bothers them. Yeah, I mean, I'm always usually in, um, in landscape mode, uh -huh. and I've never noticed it. So. Yeah, I have actually not noticed it that much. I had to go on my iPad. I had to work to get it. Mm -hmm. But there, there just might be people that are really sensitive to these small time delays. I mean, it depends. It's a visual perception issue. Now, now of course, Apple says uh, this is not a problem. This is a feature. <laughs> it's not because a bug. Because we're feature. making the scrolling more interesting <laughs> and more animated. And they said, so just enjoy this feature. <laughs> it's just like when they said when you, when you hold your phone in your hand and the antenna doesn't work. That was a feature. That was the antenna gate. They said, well, that's a feature. <laughs> wow. That's the PR department for that you. Is, that is the PR department. So yeah. it turned out the iPad Pro 11 has the same controller. It, it turns out it's where the controller's mounted and where they, where they, initiate, where they initiate the screen research, re, reset, refresh. So the sixth-generation iPad Mini, exhibit, which exhibits jelly scrolling when used in the portrait mode, because they have the controller mounted along the horizontal axis. And so it's more accentuated there because basically it's scrolling downward, so it takes a lot longer to get across, you see. So uh, now the iPad Pro uh, display controllers are mounted in the same position, but because the ProMotion display refreshes at 120 kilohertz, you don't see jelly motion there. So uh, I would just say just... Don't let it bother you. And if you want a new iPad mini, just get it. We got an email from Azra in Fredericksburg. Dear Doc and Jim, I recently bought an upgraded uh, 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 an upgraded iPhone. I went from iPhone 7 to iPhone 12. Well, my 7 didn't have that little notch in the at the top of the screen. I hate that notch. Is there anything I can do to hide the notch so it's not so annoying? I love the show Azra in Fredericksburg. Well, Azra, you're not alone. A lot of people hate that notch. Now, I've grown... I hated it in the beginning, but, you know, Apple told me it was a feature. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that settled your mind right that there. That settled my mind. And yeah, there's there like little space on either side to, to, to put in some data, like 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 what network you're connected to and is do you have Wi-Fi. And they, so they use the space up there. So now I've decided, well, since it's a feature, you know, it's okay. Because, you know, you know a lot of times a problem is simply how you define it. <laughs> if somebody says, well, yeah, my grass is too high. But... That's a feature to my house because I like to see high grass. So you can decide what's good or what's bad. So, so Apple said, well, that's not a problem. But actually, as many people think that notch is a problem. So it turns out they have notch removers. What it does, it puts a black band exactly the width of the notch at the top of the screen. And it blends in with the notch. And then all the data that is sort of displayed up in the corners is pushed down so now it looks like you've got a square screen that's slightly smaller. And some people that just don't like the notch have, have gone for the notch remover. So there is one. It's, well, it's, um, you know, there, and there are two applications that are, that are out there. Now, the first application has a very original name, 
notch remover. It costs 99 cents. And it's really easy is to it, use. Is it you download that? Is that you what download you buy it from it in the, the app, app store? store? Yeah, okay. Download it from the pay ninety nine cents. It's notch remover. It's less than a lot of ringtones. That's right. Now the second one is Nacho, <laughs> N O T C H O. Now Nacho is free. Now, uh, now the trouble is that the wallpaper that Nacho puts on your <clears throat> on your iPhone has a watermark on it. Which you know, I, I don't. I don't really like a nacho watermark on in the center of my screen. So, um, so if you want to get rid of the watermark, you have to pay a dollar ninety nine. Oh, they're clever. So my my, I would actually prefer the notch remover. It's just just mm -hmm. a clean deal, ninety nine cents, and then yeah. and then you can operate without the notch. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at Tech Talk. At, uh, email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And in a moment, we're going to hear a story of a man for whom germanium was very germane. Profiles in IT coming up next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Morris Chang... He actually has a doctorate. It would be Dr. Morris Chang, but everybody called him Morris. Morris Chang is best known as founder, former chairman and CEO of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, the world's largest silicon foundry. Chang was born July 10th, 1931 in Ningbo, Zhejiang, China. When he was young, he wanted to become a novelist or a journalist. His father did not like the idea because he wanted his son, of course, to either be an engineer or a doctor. Forget about the soft skills. Now, Cheng's family, Cheng's family was forced to flee advancing armies during three different wars in China. First, the Sino-Japanese War. Second, World War II. And third, the Civil War 
in China that followed World War II. In 1948, as China was at the height of the Chinese Civil War, a year and a year before the People's Republic of China was established, Chang moved to Hong Kong with his family. The next year, with the help of an uncle who lived in Boston, he moved to the United States to attend Harvard. He went to Harvard for one year as a, as a freshman, and Harvard did not have uh, they. He wanted, you know, he said, "Look, he said, I, I mean, they they had a lot of literature. They had, and he could have studied literature there." But he realized, he said, I'll never get a job because in China, the I, 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 only way I'm going to get a job as a Chinese individual is going to be in, in technology. Because he says back, back in the early 50s, the only Chinese he saw, I, this is what he said in the interview, they either worked in a laundry or you worked in a restaurant. You just didn't have many Chinese, say, lawyers or writers. So, but you had Chinese individuals who were going into technology. He said, I better go do technology. He didn't think that Harvard had enough hard technology. So he transferred to MIT his sophomore year. He ended up receiving a Bachelor of Science from MIT and, and ultimately a, a Bachelor's and a Master's from MIT in Mechanical Engineering. He got the, the Bachelor's in 52 and the Master's in 50, 1953. And then he's enrolled in the uh, Ph.D. program. Now, he said he actually didn't like mechanical engineering. You know, he said it was okay, but he didn't really enjoy it. It didn't really float his boat. And he, and he said, to tell you the truth, he, I listened to this interview that he had. He said, I just didn't study that hard. And it ended up that he failed the Ph.D. qualifying exam, exam twice. And at MIT, you can only pass the MIT – you can only – you're only given two attempts to pass the uh, to pass the qualifying exam for the Ph.D. program, and then you're out. So he failed it twice, and he admitted later that he just didn't study hard enough, and he had to get a job. So he went out. He, he started working in 1955. He started working at Sylvania Semiconductor. They hired him as an engineer. Now, his first job there at uh, at uh, at Sylvania Semiconductor, they, he, he was working on uh, making uh, germanium transistors, and they had a yield problem. And it turned out that they were uh, putting the contacts on these germanium transistors in, in, improperly, not in a very good fashion. So he redesigned the whole contact structure. That's sort of like mechanical engineering, and he managed to really up, up the yield there. But he didn't like working at Sylvania. He didn't think they were focused really on products. He said once the CEO came in, he gave a speech to all the troops. He says, you know, the problem here at Sylvania, what we can sell, we're not able to make. And what we can make, we can't sell. <laughs> and he said, you know, that's a conundrum that's hard to get out of. So he decided to leave Sylvania. And in 1958, after he worked at Sylvania for three years, he moved to Texas Instruments. And TI at that time was rapidly expanding, getting into, uh, getting into, you know, the the semiconductor field. See, transistors had been invented at Bell Labs, and then Bell Labs licensed the transistor technology to various companies, including Texas Instruments, and say also including Sylvania, because they, <clears throat> because of the um, uh, restrictions on Bell Lab, they could not actually go into the manufacturing business because it would be. Um, it would be uh, it would violate their antitrust uh, agreements with the United States. So he joined uh, he, he joined TI and TI was basically 
uh, making four transistors for IBM. It, they, essentially, they were like a foundry, really. IBM had designed four transistors, the processing steps, and they were having them produce their TI. And, I, and, and um, IBM was also, um, was also making the transistors at their place. Well, there was one particular transistor of these four that was really hard to make. And um, and down at TIR, they they were getting a yield of about about uh, nearly zero. Uh, yield is uh, what percentage of the devices are usable after you go going through the process. So you know uh, their yield, uh, uh, the number of usable devices was almost zero. And so so his boss said, "Look, why don't you work on this this line that's that's so difficult?" Now it turned out that IBM was able to get um, about a ten percent yield on that particular transistor. So he worked on it. He tinkered with it. He he started uh, he started learning about semiconductor processing. You know what what metals you diffuse, how you use the diffusion. He changed the temperatures, changed the metals, changed you know changed. The, he sort of tweaked it around a little bit. And he and he would do a little tweak, make measurements, do another little tweak, make measurements. He sort of systematically tweaked the process. And within three months, he'd taken the yield from virtually zero up to 25 to 30%. It was like a miracle. IBM said, it's a fluke. TI, you, you guys are not that good. We don't believe it. So IBM came down, and uh, Morris Chang showed him the systematic process that he went through to tweak everything in order to maximize the yield. And IBM was impressed. Well, that by that time, even the president of T of TI knew who Morris Chang was. This guy was a hero because he had transformed this production line in, in such a short time. So they made him a, um, uh, a manager of the uh, germanium production line. He had 20 people working for him. So he was, he was on the way up. So they decided that they would invest in him. So in 1961, they sponsored him to, uh, for a Ph.D. program at Stanford. So he went to went to Stanford. Uh, now this time, uh, you know, I was listening to him talk. This time he says, "Well, this time he studied," <laughs> and he said, since he had worked in the industry for three years, three years at TI, three years at Sylvania, he he knew what he needed to know, and it focused him. So when he went to Stanford, he he studied, and he passed his PhD qualifying exam first time, and he got his PhD from Stanford in two and a half years. In, in, in 1964. He got it in, uh, in electrical engineering. Now, during his TI career, he rose through the TI ranks because he was really a good process engineer and he was a good manager, a very good manager. He, he rose to group vice president of TI's semiconductor business, and that was the largest semiconductor business in the world. They had, you know, they had uh, gotten into integrated circuits, Jack Kilby there at TI had 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 invented uh, integrated circuits. Uh, there was also a, a gentleman at Intel who had simultaneously invented integrated circuits. So TI was right in the beginning of the whole integrated circuit revolution based on the invention of the transistor that came from Bell Labs. So he went from germanium transistors uh, in the beginning to silicon transistors and then to integrated circuits. He engineered the transition from bipolar to metal oxide semiconductor integrated circuits. So MOS circuits were 
met, were, were, were faster, easier to make, and he, and he engineered a transition in, into a different type of transistor for integrated circuits. Now, he pioneered a controversial method of pricing that was extremely successful for TI. What he did, he priced it ahead of the cost curve. So now what that means is, you know, once you ramp up production, as soon as the production is really high, you can lower the cost. So what he did, he did the ramp, he projected what the ramp up would be, and he computed what the cost will be after ramp up. And that was his initial cost that he charged. In other words, he was selling the initial devices at a loss in order to build demand and in order to build his production volume up. And that had the secondary effect of driving out the competition. So it was extremely successful for TI because once he drove out the competition, well, he could raise the prices. And it turned out to be a long-term, more profitable strategy to do that. And he pioneered that. Now, he was taken over there like gangbusters, but uh, and he was on his way really to become CEO, but they <clears throat> somehow he got derailed at TI. Uh, nobody's really talking about it, but some think it's because he was Chinese. And they just they didn't want to... No, I mean, nobody's going to say that. Even though he demonstrated his business savvy, this whole business of, you know, pumping the market, priming yeah. the market, you know, priming the pump of the market. So he really deserved to have a leadership role. He he deserved to be T, uh, CEO of T. I mean, he made their most, he was in their most profitable division, build it from, from scratch. Uh, but, but he was sidetracked and they took him out of the, uh, the, the integrated circuit business, the manufacturing business, and they put it into consumer electronics. I mean, consumer electronics, he doesn't really think about consumer electronics. And like, okay, he was, he worked on speak and spell product. <laughs> now, he was proud of speak and spell. I mean, I actually, I bought a speak and spell. It works really well. But, but he just, I mean, he didn't understand the consumer market because uh, it's not really driven by engineering. It's driven by acceptance of the product by the consumer. So he was not successful there. And, and he realized that they had pulled him out and stuck him in consumer electronics to sidetrack him. And he knew that he was never going to be in the CC suite. So he quit. He quit TI. Uh, he quit without a job, and but he was he was an in-demand guy. He had a lot of people after him, so he finally took a job um, in nineteen uh, in nineteen eighty uh, uh, yeah nineteen eighty four. He took a job as COO of General Instrument Corporation. Now, this General Instrument Corporation they made semiconductor, they also made cable boxes, and he figured, okay, I'll be there for like maybe three years, and I'll become CEO. Well, he got there. He hated the company. I mean, it wasn't right for him. They, they, they weren't forward-looking. They didn't have great vision on where they were going in mean, this cable box thing. And then they were then, then semiconductors was kind of a sideline. It just wasn't right for him. He said, I, I don't like this company. He, he decided to leave. And just about that time, Thai, the government um, of, uh, of Taiwan wanted, uh, wanted to move into the, the semiconductor production business in a big way. Now, now Taiwan, of course— um, in 1975, they, they, they'd made a decision to sort of support 
semiconductors, uh, and they uh, gave a contract to RCA, and RCA brought over uh, brought over some technology to uh, to Taiwan so they could start producing semiconductors. But it was basically about one generation old technology, and so they were working with it. And now they wanted to ramp this thing up. So they, they brought him over at, and made him chairman of a nonprofit organization called the Industrial Technology Research Institute, ITRI. The, the Industrial Technology Research Institute was funded by the government, and, the, and that particular nonprofit, their task was to sort of stimulate the industry within Taiwan to actually produce um, high technology, particularly in the electronics area. Now, he had to promote industrial and technological development in Taiwan. <clears throat> now, what happened, there was one guy that was, uh, one minister was in charge of ITRI. There was another minister that, that just thought ITRI was just kind of a big bureaucracy that wouldn't amount to anything, and he wanted to actually start producing semiconductors. So he, he called Morris Chang, and he said, look, I want you to start a semiconductor manufacturing company. I want you to start the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And he said, and, and the government will contribute 50% of what it takes to start it up. So uh, Morris Chang said, well, that actually is kind of interesting. I could, uh, I could do that. So, so he said, this was the deal. You're, you're going to have to, government will put up half the money, but you're going to have to get a high-tech company to make a big stake. And then if you get a a high-tech company to put in, say, 25 or 30% big stake. They said the, Taiwe the Taiwan government will get a bunch of smaller Taiwanese companies that will make up the balance so you can get the full funding to launch this, pro launch this particular company. And by the way, they ultimately spent $220 million launching TM, uh, TSMC. And in the end, uh, they, they got Philips uh, to, to be the... Uh, sort of the outside linchpin. Philips is from the Netherlands. Philips put up 28% of that money. The Taiwan government ended up putting up 48% of the money. And then the balance was made up by 13 Taiwan companies that were sort of uh, forced to invest by, by the ministry. And so we started this, uh, this company. Now, the problem was, I mean, he'd, he had worked on, in the biggest semiconductor company in the world at TI, and they designed their own chips. They, they manufactured them. So they, they had design capability. They had manufacturing capability. They had marketing capability. They could sell stuff. Now, in Taiwan, there were no chip designers. So they had no design capacity in Taiwan. Um, they had no marketing capacity. I mean, all they could do was, like, make stuff. So and he knew how to make stuff because he had he had been in the the whole process improvement there in uh, in, uh, in in TI. So he decided let's just make a pure play foundry. Now a foundry is something that makes chips, and there will be a company that designs the chips, but they can't make them. They send the design to the foundry. The foundry manufactures the chips. Then the company that designed it takes the chips back, puts them in the whatever electronics they want, and they sell it. And then the foundry is just a chip maker. It's a pure play foundry. There were really no pure play foundries around the world. And, and, and at that time, uh, you know, uh, Moore said there, there might have been 
a couple of small foundries. And you and what would happen is that say a big a big company that that made chips for their own use, like TI, there might be a small company that wants to design a chip and make it, then and they might convince TI to make their chip for them as as a foundry. But the problem is since TI is also designing chips, this company sends their proprietary design to TI. Well, shoot, TI is going to steal that design. So there's kind of a conflict of interest there if you're manufacturing a product and also building them. So the Pure Play Foundry seemed like a good idea, and it turned out that it was a masterstroke. Um, by in 1985, there were only like 20 companies that were they call them fabulous companies, companies that designed chips that didn't have fabrication facilities. By 1995, there were almost 400 fabulous countries, and so there was a huge demand for this. And um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation became one of the most profitable profitable chip makers in the world. It was it was actually he totally changed the industry, the chip making industry, with this particular new business model, and they ended up having a higher market cap than Intel by by a factor of three. So they were extremely successful, and then they took all their profits, rolled them back in to make more and more processing plants, to process more chips. And so they always could invest in the latest and greatest technology. And this, and they eliminated the entry barrier for, for all, these fabli- all these companies that didn't have the money to build fabrication facilities. Now... Uh, He's he served on many. He 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 left Itri in 1994. He became chairman of Vanguard International Semiconductor Corporation from 94 to 2003, while still serving as chairman of TSMC. He, by the way, because this uh, TMSC ultimately went went public in the New York Stock Exchange, and the Taiwan government made a boatload of money on that because they owned 48 percent, and uh, Chang owned one percent of it, which is pretty, which was worth a lot of money. Uh, in, in 2005, they brought in another CEO, uh, Rick Tsai, uh, and he was there until 2009, and he just drove it into the ground. I mean, this was there was like a uh, um, a big setback in in technology during that time period. They were laying people off. Uh, they, Rick Tsai had not invested in new technology. They they were falling behind the power curve. So he came back in as chairman. In, in 2009, as, as he came back as CEO, and he turned the company around again. So he, he's like a guy who ends up being as big a business genius as he was a, you know, technology genius. He is, and he, he, was able, he, yeah, he was able to sort of see the opportunities and then organize people. I mean, he read like Sun Tzu's The Art of War. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of stuff he does. He's a strategist, mm-hmm. okay? He's a strategist, and... He also built a, a core ethic of morality within the company. You always treat people right. You do the right thing. You've got good business practices. He brought a healthy ethos to this this company, and and he and he, uh, he he and he turned it around again. I mean, he he went back to turn it around at age seventy eight. Um. If you can imagine, I love that. I don't believe in he, retirement either. <laughs> he he, and he started TSMC when he was about fifty-five. Wow. Yeah. So he was at TI, and they they put him out the pasture at fifty-four, 
And then by 55, 56, he was starting his whole new venture, which he built it up. Then he left, and he came back at he came back at um, at 78, and then uh, and then rebuilt. He's 90 now. He's still he's still alive. I'm that that the 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 talk that Bob in Maryland said he just gave but recently. Uh, in 2018, he announced his retirement from TSMC, but he's still known as the father of the Taiwan chip industry. Now, as you could guess, he, he was never really motivated by money. I mean, but he, he made a lot of money. His net worth is estimated to be about $2.7 billion as of October 2021. Some people think it's over $3 billion. So he's got money, but um, he's, uh, he's like a revered uh, tech genius in Taiwan. And what's interesting, this is the largest semiconductor production facility in the world, and China wants to attack Taiwan. Yeah, well, China wants that piece of that action. That's I guess. right. Yeah. So there you go. Everything, everything you wanted to know about Morris Chang, the found, the chairman and CEO of Taiwan, former chairman and CEO of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Except there's more. Doc has more to say about Morris Chang in a moment. Pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair. Observations from the faculty lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Necessity, as they say, is the mother of invention. Now, Morse Chang wasn't trying uh, to reinvent semiconductors when he uh, started Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. He did it because government officials wanted him to start a semiconductor business. Now, and these guys didn't know anything about semiconductor. They didn't know what it even meant. But they, but they said, we want to get into this hot action of semiconductor production. But Taiwan was weak in both design and marketing. He didn't see any way forward uh, except just doing processing and let other people do the design and other people do the marketing. You know, he thought that was the only way forward. But he, 
really in the beginning didn't see it as being as big as it ultimately happened. It was sort of a solution in search of a problem. And the problem emerged a couple of years later when companies wanted to start fabulous creation of products. Suddenly, after he created TSMC, entrepreneurs could create semiconductor businesses around chips without the huge expenditure of cash and effort to open a semiconductor fabrication facility. All they had to do was design the chip, ship it off to TSMC, and then market it. Thus was born, because of the TSMC engine, the fabulous semiconductor industry. Now, a surprising number of today's hottest high-tech companies got their start with TSMC's factories. Telecom pioneers Broadcom, Broadcom and Qualcomm both started with TSMC. Graphic powerhouses NVIDIA and ATI started with TSMC. So, so they were all fabulous. These they are, were all fabulous. Yeah. It let them get started. Meaning, they could, they and to remind free. people, fabrication without doing the fabricating right. of what you're designing. Because so, yes. the problem was if you if you had to build it, you, it, you, you might spend $100 million to build a fabrication facility. And that, it takes a lot of money. But you can start designing stuff with almost no money. And you'd have your creative power. So it totally changed the makeup of the tech industry having this fabrication facility available and one that would not steal your proprietary design. Okay, that's, yeah, that's that the, is key. the key. It is. That yeah, is the absolutely. key. His success made TSMC the central element in the global chip logistics chain. This one fact created the conditions that have led to the current chip shortage. We're sort of backing into this problem. Okay, I, I want to follow this thread then. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, so you see uh, maybe 80% uh, of the chips are made by TSMC. It's a huge percentage. And uh, global automakers from the U.S. and Europe have put pressure on TSMC to give them priority for their orders. They want TSMC to negotiate with their other clients to free up manufacturing capacity for the auto chips. So the majority of the auto chips were made by TSMC. And then what happened during the pandemic, because of all the remote work, the demand for chips went up. And there wasn't enough time for TSMC to ramp up their manufacturing facilities to meet the demand. At the same time, TSMC had, because of the pandemic, they had their production went down. And so because we were like this one company that was central to this, it made us vulnerable. So this is a supply chain vulnerability. And you can see what happened. We don't have manufacturing here in the U.S. of semiconductor chips. We've got some, but not that much. So now they're trying to encourage through tax incentives more manufacturing in the U.S. So TSMC is looking at putting a plant in the U.S. Did you say TSMC makes 80% of the world's uh, yeah, Something chips? like, yeah, maybe of the car manufacturers. It's, okay. a, it's a super high percentage. Yeah. yeah. Because a lot of these, well, see, like, okay, car, car manufacturers, well, why would they make so many car manufacturing chips? Well, Ford does not want to build a semiconductor processing facility. But Ford wants to design their own proprietary chips because that's, 
because the heart of a new automobile is really the electronics and the computer. So they want to design the chip, but they don't want to build a chip processing facility. They want to produce cars. So they outsource their chip production to TSMC. I mean, it's a, it, it's a marriage made in heaven until you've got a logistical glitch. And so, and so we have to, it sort of forces us to rethink do we want to have the most efficient allocation of labor and work to achieve the best price-performance ratio, or do we want to hold back and keep some of that processing capacity here in the U.S.? It's mm-hmm. sort of the classic, sort of the classic. Um, you know, this is the new steel because we used to fret about steel that we should always have some ability to make steel in this country in case global conditions change. And now I think you know chips are as important as steel to anything we're doing. That nowadays. is exactly right. And yeah. so, and so TSM. Now the good. Now see the. And, and now TSMC, here they are. I mean, they're they're so close to China. China wants to take them over, of course. They call themselves the People's Republic of China, you know, back because when back when Mao took over China, he drove the existing government to Taiwan. So the existing government's on this little island, Taiwan, and they did that to get away from Mao. And Mao wants to finish the job of taking over China by capturing Taiwan. And now we got all that semiconductor processing there. So now uh, Taiwan is thinking of putting some processing plants in, in Japan. I think they're looking at getting processing plants more distributed. And what they've done by being able to focus just on processing, they're able to plow back all the profit from their chip design, from their chip manufacturing into movement of more advanced technology. So they're, they're coming out with smaller and smaller feature size, which is really, they're, they're down to five, five nanometer feature size. And, um, and, all the companies want to want to go with them. Now, Samsung makes chips. Samsung makes chips. Uh, like Apple has their chips made by, by Samsung. Now, the problem with Samsung, they're also in uh, the mobile phone business. So Apple's thinking, wait a minute here. There's a conflict of interest. We're giving all of our proprietary designs to Samsung for them to manufacture. And now they're competing with us. So Apple would like to move their uh, a lot of their chip manufacturing from Samsung over to TSMC, where TSMC is not going to reveal the proprietary designs. But they're not in a position to take on a whole lot of new business right now, are they? That's they're not. No. They've they've just they've just said they're going to going to uh, um, you know allocate a hundred billion dollars to build another plant. But so there's the go. So this is the question. Uh, the question is: Is this level of interdependence between countries and allocating all the foundries good or bad? And I'm thinking it's. Good to a point, but not as stable as you would like in the world economy. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Everything you want to know about uh, about outsourcing and foundries. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, AI to make some Beethoven music. Yes, uh, Beethoven's Tenth Symphony, and you think I'm an idiot because you know he only wrote nine, <laughs> and yet, uh, you know, w- listen to this, Doc, because I'm checking in the next room, and the uh, Tech Talk Radio Orchestra is rehearsing this morning, Oh, and I believe we're... Oh, yes. Doesn't it? It sounds a lot like Beethoven. Oh, it really Yeah, that does. must be the real deal then. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll find out in, in a moment here on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, 
the Internet and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Beethoven's 10th Symphony was completed with AI software. It's really interesting. He died while he was writing the... uh, the, the Tenth Symphony, by the way. He had been given a contract but from the government to do the Ninth and Tenth Symphonies. He finished the Ninth Symphony, and the Tenth Symphony was partially done, and then he died, so it was never finished. So the project was conceived to complete his Tenth Symphony on the composer's 250th birthday. Now, artificial intelligence was used to complete Beethoven's Tenth Symphony. Now, the world premiere of the music is going to take place August 9th. It's all completed. The world premiere is going to be August 9th. We've got a few snippets of it that yeah, we we'll be able to play yeah, today. Just a little bit, yeah, yeah. Just a little oh. bit. We're almost out of time, though, Doc. So oh, yeah. Yeah. So what they did, they, uh, oh, yeah, we're almost out of time. So anyway, what they did, they used AI to sort of replicate some of the different uh, variations on notes. And then that, that Beethoven liked to do. Then they used AI to link them together. And then after they did that, they were able to actually take and put together the whole symphony using AI. And uh, let's let's just play a little bit of that there more. Yeah, they're still rehearsing over there. Oh yeah. So they they played this for uh, for an audience of Beethoven enthusiasts, and they could not tell that had that had admit where where it was AI and where it was Beethoven. Yeah. And they they ultimately uh, did really a good job at this. I think we're going to see more and more AI generated music. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at strapped.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online. Online.